0: Lesson 19, Know Your Enemy. In my experience, probably the most misunderstood concept among Christians is sin. We don't really know what it is. We've almost completely severed it from its biblical context. And this failure of understanding has drastic consequences that show up every day, most conspicuously in our relationships. How we relate to others, how we relate to ourselves, how we relate to God, all of our relationships are colored by our understanding of what the Bible is talking about when it talks about sin. A foundation of our entire discipleship approach is that Jesus tells us the truth about reality. One way to understand that word salvation is remembering that in Greek, salvation and healing are the same word. Following Christ means, among other things, Letting Jesus heal our mental map of reality. We're letting Jesus change how we navigate our way through life. His word for this is repentance. One of the core concepts of grasping Jesus' mental map of reality is understanding this biblical word, sin. It's misunderstood, not only outside the church, but maybe more so inside. In fact, the people most prone to use the word may be least prone to understand it. For instance, some more liberal or progressive camps in the Christian community want to banish the word entirely, as negative, even harmful. It's got so much baggage attached, it's been replaced with words like broken or weak. But just as common, and perhaps even more detrimental, is conservative branches of Christianity who tend to narrow the definition of sin down to the point that many churchgoers have a very distorted view of it, which means we have a distorted view of ourselves. Here's how Richard Lovelace, professor of church history, in his classic book, Dynamics of the Spiritual Life, put it. During the 19th century, the church's consciousness of sin began to erode is gradually sin began to be defined in a way which seemed more rationally defensible. Sins as conscious, voluntary acts of transgression against known laws. The depth awareness of sin discovered by the old masters was exchanged by most Christians for a concept of sin which was virtually heretical. Lovelace is saying that a little more than a hundred years ago, people began to think of sin in a very superficial way as breaking the rules. He continues, One of the consequences of this remarkable shift is that in the 20th century, pastors have often been reduced to the status of legalistic moralist, while the deeper aspects of the cure of souls are generally relegated to psychotherapy. He's saying churches became gatekeepers, deciding who's in and out, dividing people between the sinners and the righteous. But listen to how he continues. But the structure of sin in the human personality is something far more complicated than isolated acts of deliberate disobedience, commonly designated by the word sin. In its biblical definition, sin cannot be limited to isolated instances or patterns of wrongdoing. It is something much more akin to the psychological term complex, an organic network of compulsive attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors deeply rooted in our alienation from God. He's saying that sin is not so much a choice we make as a complex of attitudes, a darkening of the human mind and heart, that we have turned from the truth about God to embrace lies about Him. And consequently, he adds, to embrace a whole universe of lies about God's creation. Loveless tells us that sin, rightly understood, affects us so deeply we don't just make bad choices, we come to live by lies. People who are out of touch with reality we call crazy and people who make unwise choices we call fools. Well, sin makes us all crazy fools. Loveless concludes, sinful thoughts, words, and deeds flow from our darkened hearts automatically and compulsively as water From a polluted fountain. Now, he's not talking about just before we were Christians. He's talking about the human condition that we are stained all the way through. So much so that even at our best, evil is always right there with us. Now, you may have grown up hearing that we're all sinners or that we have a sin problem. The burden of this lesson is to convince us we have no idea of the depth and power of sin that remains in our hearts. The Bible says, yes, sin is what's wrong with the world. It's the reason things are not the way they're supposed to be, human sin. But our condition is aggravated because we chronically don't see the power of it, and that's part of sin's power, that we continually underestimate its power. Therefore, to acquire Jesus' mental map of reality, to see things the way that God intends for us, we have to understand the nature of and power of sin. For some of us, maybe for the first time. I want to show you the nature of it, then look at some faces of it. It's interesting the Bible used several metaphors to capture the nature of sin, because it's not a simple concept. It's a complex. It affects everything about us, like ink and water pollutes every part of it. So sin. It corrupts, stains every word, thought, and deed, every intention of our hearts. That sounds dark, but the light will never be light and the good news will never be good until we are more acquainted with our own heart of darkness. I'm going to be referring to a few key passages, but let's start where the Bible starts in Genesis with the Cain and Abel story where the Lord warns Cain when Cain becomes murderously angry. Well, let me just read Genesis 4 verse 7. Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you. Sin is crouching at your door. This is a Hebrew word almost always used of wild beasts, and in particular, leopards and tigers. If you have a cat, you know something. You know how even house cats crouch down and ball up, ready to pounce. A, cat's, a cat makes herself small to lie low. She looks much smaller than she really is. She hides. She crouches. Well, sin is here depicted as a tiger, something far greater than a house cat, but it's still hiding. When God comes to tell Cain what God is telling all of us, sin by its nature looks smaller. Your sin always looks smaller than it is. It crouches down. Your sin hides itself. You rationalize it, but it hides in the midst of your very ordinary life and ordinary feelings. We don't have time right now to look at the whole story of Cain and Abel, but please don't miss the story by demonizing Cain and thinking to yourself, Oh, I'd never I'd never be that angry to murder someone. But Cain is not so different from us. He makes his he makes his offering to God, but when it comes to how he wants to live his life, Cain wants to do it in his own way. He believes in God. He just wants to use God as a means to his own ends. Cain's real God is Cain is Cain. And as long as the God he professes serves his real God, his agenda, all is fine. But when he doesn't, anger. Often our anger reveals what really holds title to our hearts. And it looks so ordinary, just like a house cat, so small, maybe even cute, but it's a monster that wants to devour your life. Ask the average person why the Holocaust? Why these horrible stories we read about in the news? Most people say ordinary people aren't bad. It's just a few bad apples. When Hannah Arendt saw Adolf Eichmann, one of the Nazis who was caught in the mid-1960s, put on trial because of his atrocities, she wrote about it in The New Yorker. She described it as, quote, the banality of evil. People who watched them said the Nuremberg trials were unnerving because we want to believe ordinary people can't do monstrous things. That only monsters do monstrous things. But when we see the monsters, we see, well, they happen to look just like us. They're ordinary. And they look like us because they are us. And if they're capable, we're capable. Surely you've asked yourself what you would have done in 1940s Germany. We want to believe most people are good and decent. It was just a few bad apples. But God tells us in the heart of every ordinary person is a monster. A Christian can never look at someone else and say, I'd never do that. Maybe. But that may just be because you have a different personality. Maybe you wouldn't do that, but not because of your virtue, but because of your passivity. You'd never be so bold as to do something like that. A Christian who understands his or her heart puts nothing past himself. Please don't delude yourself into thinking there is not the seed of the worst criminal in your own heart. Only someone out of touch with what lurks in the ordinary human heart will be shocked by the failings of others. Remember, it's the nature of sin to hide. Your sins always look much smaller to you than they do to anyone else. Your sins crouch. If you have great friends who know the real you, ask them, what's bad about me? Would you help me see? It, looks, it may look like just a little resentment, but that's actually murder curled up in a little ball. Uh, God comes to you and said, do you see that little thing you're living with? Those little grudges, those little fantasies? It's far worse. It's far more monstrous. Be killing sin or it will be killing you, said the old Pur- Puritans. Don't give it any place in your life, okay? Watch out. Now that we've seen the nature of sin is to hide and crouch and appear small, Let me give you some faces of sin. We could spend months on this, but biblically, here's just three faces. First, sin is self-deception. Self-deception is the infinite capacity of the human heart to hide the truth from itself because the truth is too painful. We can't handle it. Self-deception is not the most terrible thing we do, but lying to ourselves is the reason we can do terrible things and not even see what we're doing. How am I so certain we can be self-deceived? Besides the fact that I have, there's King David, the man after God's own heart. If he was deceived, so much so that he slept with another man's wife and then had him murder him to cover it up. David knew what he'd done. He knew it, but he didn't know it. It was just too painful. His guilt was too great until his friend Nathan came along and told him a story to help David see what he couldn't. And that was at least a year later after the biggest mistake of his life. David wrote Psalm 51. Do you remember verse 4? Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being. David finally owns up. He finally takes responsibility. Very rarely when people do wicked things do they set out saying, you know, I wanted to do something wicked. There are exceptions, but most of the time we are experts at shifting responsibility Blaming our behavior on others, pointing fingers. Your circumstances may have been the occasion for your sin, the trigger, but you didn't get angry because of what they did to you. You got angry because anger was in your heart and they bumped into you and what was in your heart spilled out. Where did that come from? We want to say. Where did it come from? It came from you. Their action was the occasion but what came out of you was already in your heart. It's easy to read Psalm 51 as just about murder and adultery and think, I'd never do that. That's only for people who really blew their life up. But if King David is capable of this, can anyone say that he or she is not in danger of doing it? You know, but you don't know because you can't bear to know. So we rationalize and we justify. We may even call ourselves a sinner, but it's too traumatic to admit that we might be just that polluted to blow up the foundation of your life. You'd have to admit something about yourself you spent an awful lot of time avoiding. You'd have to give up your facade of respectability, the carefully curated persona. I believe we all know in our hearts that we're sinners, but we don't want to see it. Because without the grace of God, you can't get away from your self-deception. You can never admit, I'm self-deceived. I can be manipulative, deceitful, angry. You know what it would cost you to admit that? Everything. So you have to cover up the truth about yourself, your kids, your marriage. Only the grace of God frees you to see the truth, tell the truth, and no longer be afraid of the truth. That's what David's talking about when he says, Thou desirest truth in the inward parts. That's one face of sin, self-deception. Another face of sin is self-righteous, misplaced faith. To explain, what's the opposite of sin? You might be tempted to say the opposite of sin is virtue. If sin is crossing a boundary, then the opposite of that is not crossing the boundary. Well, that's half the truth, and a half-truth left alone becomes a dangerous untruth. One of the the men who taught me the most about sin is the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. He was very concerned that everyone in Denmark thought they were Christians, but so few of them trusted in the Lord. Kierkegaard pointed out the opposite of sin is not virtue. The opposite of sin is faith. The opposite of sin is trust. Sin is the self rooting itself in the self instead of rooting ourselves in God. And it's especially easy for church people to do this because a very religious person, a moral person with orthodox beliefs, we can be just as bound by sin, maybe even more so, than a skeptical pagan. Exhibit A, the elder brother in Jesus' parable in Luke 15. The father welcomes the no-good prodigal little brother who disgraced the family name. He comes home begging the father, and the father not only welcomes him but embraces him. And this drives the elder brother nuts. He's so angry he refuses to celebrate, so the father goes out to him, but he answers his father, this is Luke 15, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Jesus' story makes clear the elder brother is lost too, not in spite of his goodness, but because of his goodness. His very goodness has become a barrier between him and God. I wonder how true of this how true this is of churchgoers in the Midwest. Years ago, I read a sermon by George Whitfield that completely changed the way I preach. The sermon's called The Method of Grace. And in it, Whitfield says there are two things you need to do to become a Christian. First of all, you have to repent of your sin. But that's not enough because even the Pharisees do that. Secondly, he says, you have to repent of your righteousness. To quote Whitfield, Self-righteousness is the last idol that is rooted out of our heart before you can become a Christian. He goes on to say in that sermon, you're not a Christian until you see one of the primary ways you try to be your own savior is through your own obedience, just like that older brother. He's lost, not in spite of his performance, but because of it. And that's one of the main ways we try and keep control of our lives today, by avoiding sin. But what we're actually avoiding is Jesus. You may have repented of your sin, defined narrowly as bad choices, but have you ever repented of your righteousness? If not, your faith might be misplaced. It's really in yourself. And the truth is the lack of grace you extend to others when they blow their own lives up. It's easy to recognize the sin of the addicts who blow their lives up. It's much easier to see the sin of the elder brother who judges the addicts, the failures, the failures, One of the most common faces of sin is self-righteousness. And here's the kick. The number one sign of self-righteousness, you don't think you're self-righteous. But the more self-righteous you know yourself to be, the less you probably are. A third face, sin as slavery. Sin as addiction. If I ask you, are you an addict, all sorts of images come to your mind. A great book is In the Realm of Hungry Ghost by Dr. Gabor Maté one of the world's leading experts on addiction. He says all addictive behaviors either soothe pain or distract from it. So his mantra is not why the addiction, but where the pain. My table believes there's only one addictive pattern, but it plays out, plays out in a variety of contexts. He says the addict is after a temporary change in brain status. Addiction is an attempt to regulate an unbearable emotional state Internally. You're trying to regulate your needs through external means, be it drugs, the internet, exercise, food, whatever. He concludes, there's only one universal addiction process. The targets are different, but in each case, you're trying to escape emotional pain. He lectures around the world and likes to ask his audiences, how many of you would say you're addicts, only a few hands go up? And then he says, let me give you a definition. An addiction is manifested in any behavior that a person finds temporary relief in or pleasure in and therefore craves, but suffers negative consequences in the long term, but is unable to give it up. He continues, any behavior with the key hallmarks of craving, pleasure, or relief in the short term, and negative outcomes in the long term, and the inability to give it up, that's an addiction. Drugs, sex, gambling, pornography, the acquisition of wealth, the hoarding of objects... And then he asks, Now, how many of you will acknowledge some addiction? He says, Almost every hand goes up. Now, Matei is not a Christian, but you know who agrees with him? Tim Keller. In answer to the question, What is it about the human condition that we can know, that we can know what we should do, and even know the consequences of not doing it, and yet we do it over and over? Keller says, This is the Bible's explanation of sin. It's not just that the human heart is sinful, but that we are slaves to sin. That sin is not just an action, it is a power. It's a power that enslaves us. And someone with even better credentials than Tim Keller or Gabor Mate says that, and that's Jesus. He says, truly I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Who would choose to be a slave? I mean, what kind of fool would choose to be a slave? Is it a choice or is it a disease? And the Bible is so nuanced, it's so complex. It says we're enslaved. The Bible says that every human being on the face of the earth is a spiritual slave. Paul says this, I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. I am sold as a slave under sin. And the more I want to do good, the less I'm able to do it. And if you don't believe him, just try for one day to love your neighbor as yourself, to be as excited about meeting his needs as you are your own. We see what should be done, but we can't do it because we are enslaved. We are addicted to sin. I'm not saying all addictions are sin, but what I am saying, the Bible says, is that all sin is a type of addiction. The Apostle Paul agrees. Paul talks about sin like a power. That's why I keep capitalizing in this lesson to remind you that it is a power in your life more than an action you commit. Paul writes, if I do not do what I want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He's not absolving himself of responsibility. He knows what he did, but he's emphasizing the power of sin. The Bible says every sin underneath every sinful action can become an addiction. It operates just like Dr. Mate says. There's an internal distress in your life, an unmet need, a disappointment. As a a reaction, you try to deal with that distress with an agent. You attempt to soothe yourself. You and I are all sin addicts. And if you don't believe me, you know you're an addict when you try to deal with your distress by the very thing that caused your distress. That's how sin operates. When you think disobeying God is now going to give me some freedom, well, then the very act that promises freedom is taking your freedom. What's wrong with us? What's wrong with us is that we're all addicts. Not all addiction is sin, but all sin is addiction. How do we get out? How are we healed? Well, there's no worse-off slave than the one who doesn't know he's a slave. All 12 step movements understand this. The person who says, I have power, is a powerless person. But the person who says, I am powerless, I need help, desperate help, she's getting power for the first time. To apply this spiritually, if you say, I'm terribly, if you say, I'm not terribly lost, I'm not a wretch, I'm not horribly wicked, I'm not enslaved, I'm not powerless, I'm pretty good, if you say that, you were stuck in the worst kind of slavery because you don't even know you're a slave. If this is bringing you down, Pastor Jack Miller used to say, cheer up, you're far worse than you ever imagined. But the Bible gives us permission to confess, I am a sinner, that is a human being, far worse than I ever imagined. So bad that if I ever glanced how truly wretched I am, it would kill me. So many of our problems in life come from not being grounded in reality. And I like the word grounded, that is aware of our humanity, close to the ground. You probably know the name John Newton, slave trader turned hymn writer, amazing grace guy. At the end of his life, when his memory was fading, he wrote, although my memory is slipping, I remember two things clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. That's it. The antidote to our sin problem is twofold. On the one hand, to admit our problem of running from God, trying to be our own Savior, it's rooted in self. Sin's addictive, enslaving power is so much more deeper, pervasive, than we ever imagined. We, can't, <clears throat> we, can, we can turn away from self and turn to God, but we must rethink our entire way of how we relate to God's self and others. That's repentance. But the other antidote is faith in Christ. The bigger our view of our own sin, the bigger our Savior becomes. The more we hate the power that drags us down, the more we love and worship the one who lifts us up. The more we come to see the depths of our sin and misery, the greater our comfort in life, that God is our Father and Christ is our Savior who sets us free. Far from being negative, a deeper understanding of sin lifts us up. We will only be rooted in God's love to the degree we are grounded in how great is our sin, but how much greater is our Savior. The last two weeks on sin and the devil are not all that enjoyable to dwell on, but a paradox holds. We won't ever be able to experience the heights of joy unless we are familiar with the depths of the darkness. Unless we know the fearsome power of our enemies, we can't enjoy the liberating, redeeming power of our Lord. And is this not what Paul discovered? Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.